Church, if you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to open to the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 12 this morning, starting in verse 10. You'll want to follow along in the Pew Bible. You'll find that on page 9. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to uh, take that Pew Bible home. That be our gift to you. And trust that you'll be blessed by that. Uh, I do want to encourage you, by the way, this morning, and in particular in our study of the life of Abram, Abraham moving forward, that, that you do have God's Word open in your lap. I think we're just going to work verse by verse as we typically do, and I think you're going to find your ability to engage in this text and this sermon aided if you actually have God's Word open. We'll be referring to it throughout our time together, so let me encourage you to find a Bible and open it there to Genesis chapter 12. While you're finding your way there, uh, I, I do want to mention that it's been somewhat of a, um, a sad week for us as Virginians, I believe, um, in light of uh, some of the happenings taking place in Richmond. And uh, if you've been around for a while, you know I, I don't like to um, jump into politics because uh, well, most of you will disagree with uh, many of my ideas, so that's all right. We love each other anyways. We're not gathered here because we're all part of a political party. Uh, but we are... Uh, people of God, and we do believe that all people, Christian or non-Christian, old or young, born or unborn, are created in God's image, and therefore are worthy of value, dignity, and worth. Some of those smallest of God's image bearers cannot speak for themselves, and so it is the people of God that must not be silent. And when there are our leaders who seem to me justifying that it is at times appropriate to take the life of these little ones even after they're born, um, it ought to be a moral outrage in our heart. And we must not be complicit by being quiet. And so you as an American have rights to voice your political opinions, and let me as your pastor encourage you to, to stand up for the unborn, especially in light of what's going on in our state. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, if you found your way to Genesis chapter 12, we begin in verse 10, hear now the word of God. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. That it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with them into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. 
so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk through the land and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Our Father, we thank, are thankful for this passage before us. Trust that you would have much to teach us. And so now we, we come to learn from our brother Abram, our father Abram, and to ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to understand and wills to obey. We in particular want to pray for our state, this commonwealth of Virginia, and the, the terrible things that have been suggested that would be legal to be done to the smallest of your creation. And we pray to a God who loves justice, who loves to care for the orphan. We ask, Father, that you would protect the most vulnerable in this land, and that you would use your people to stand up for them in a way that is clear, in a way that is kind, in a way that is concerned, not for power or political parties, but concerned for your image and those who bear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read recently of a pastor who was outside a massive Hindu temple in India with a a tiered roof that rose five stories tall. On each of the tier, there were brightly painted figurines of their chief gods and goddesses. There were two-headed gods, half-animal, half-human gods, many-breasted female gods, gods with fierce expressions, gods with kind expressions. The pastor writes, there on the ground below I stood among a throng of people in the hot sun, beggars pulling at my sleeves, putting their hands to their mouths, dying from hunger. One beggar followed me all the way to our jeep, carrying a baby on her hip. She kept begging in a pitiful voice for food. This is a picture of humanity, he writes. We have created our own gods but our gods cannot help. So what of our God? Can he help? This God that we have sung to this morning and prayed to. Can he meet your needs? So I think if we're honest, sometimes we act as if we don't believe he can, or at least will. There are times, I think, in our lives, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have a great faith. And is it also not true that there are times in which there is great doubt in our heart, when our faith wavers. I think such is the story of Abram, this journey of faith that we see here early on his life. You remember, it was a number of weeks ago that we started our study of his life, wasn't it? But you remember that it was in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 that God first called him. 
I just want to remind you of what the Lord said there. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. So God calls Abram and he says, okay, I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your kin. I want you to leave your people. And I want you to go to a land that I'm not going to tell you about, but I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you when you get there. Right? And we, we, of course, call this the promised land. So he calls Abram out of that land to this new land, which raises a question, doesn't it? Why does Abram have to leave Ur at all? I mean, what, why, why can't God just do what he's going to do in the life of Abram where he is? It almost seems unnecessary, doesn't it? It might seem harsh to us. Well, I think it's, it's helpful to understand, in fact, as we study the book of Genesis, this is going to be helpful. And what we see in God calling Abram out of Ur to this land is a reversal of Adam's exile. You remember Adam lost the presence of God and humanity with him, and they were kicked out and barred from God's presence. And, what's, what's, and we, we, you've, when you read primeval Genesis, those first really 10 chapters, 11 chapters, we see that man is just kind of going further and further into sin. And then we come to Abram, and God's saying, okay, I'm going to open a way for humanity to return to me. And what we see in this, this call from Abram to leave Ur and to go to this land is a foreshadow, a picture of the end of humanity's exile. It's a picture of the return to Eden. In fact, when we read our Bible, we get to the end, and what do we find? That the eternal state of those who dwell with God is going to be this Eden-like existence with God. And so Adam was kicked out. But now God is calling Abraham in, Abram in, to return. So leave Ur, he says, to a land where the blessings of Eden begin to become restored. This promised land, of course, will extend not to a a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but will extend to the whole earth. As God explains in the New Testament, the kingdom of God will expand to all nations and to all peoples. And so Abraham gets up and he leaves and he goes to this to this land, and to, the, to, to take these promises. And what we'll find as we study uh, this book is that they're constantly in, under threat. The promises of God are, are constantly in danger. That's a theme that we'll see throughout Genesis because of sin and because of faithlessness. The promise of a son, the promise of land, the promise of blessings to the world are, are constantly put in jeopardy. And time, time and again, we'll, we will study, and we'll look, and we'll see like it's all about to fall apart. The whole plan is about to fail, and then in comes God at the very last minute, and, and God is faithful to his word, and God rescues those who continue to, to bring the promises of God in, in peril. And so what we are learning in Genesis, and I hope you have eyes to see it, is that only God can accomplish what he's promised. And that human failure is significant and reoccurring, but it will not stop God. We learn from Genesis that we often are the problem, and God is the solution. And you see that very clearly in this chapter, that Abram's failure is very explicit. He becomes this self-serving, cowardly, unloving, faithless man. And, and, and I read this story here of him headed down to Egypt, and I'm once again stunned by the honesty of the Bible. It will not gloss over the failings of our heroes. Even Abram needs a savior. And, and, I, and I, read, I read about this, and I'm, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm once again glad I'm not in the Bible. Right? Uh, because, listen, if you're in the Bible, God is very keen to show your worst day. Right? He'll show your good days, but he is going to show everybody your worst day. Just to be clear, you're not the Savior. He is, and we see that very clearly in Abraham's life, Abram's life, as he descends into sin as a small, faithless man. But he's on a journey. He doesn't stay there. It's beautiful. He emerges, doesn't he, from down in Egypt to the heights of this loving, generous man. And the difference between Abram in chapter 12 and Abram in chapter 13 is faith. It's faith, right? Will will he have faith in the promises of God, in the word of God? And we're going to watch him this morning learn that God is trustworthy. 
In fact, you remember it was Abraham, he, we, he, he's traveled to the promised land. He's left home, he's gone 800 miles to the promised land, and, and he's just building altar in place after place. He's praising God in the midst of all these scoffing pagans, and, and he's walking in faith there with nothing but the word of God to support him. But then trouble comes, as you see really the first scene in the text before us. Abraham and Pharaoh, which is a picture of faltering faith faltering faith. You see that in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. We, we, there's this fearful decision that's made uh, in the midst of famine. And by the way, listen, this famine is found where? It's in the promised land. So get this, God says, okay, leave everything you know Go to a place where you know no one and know nothing about, to this land that I'm going to give you. And I want you to understand, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm your God, and I'm going with you. And so he goes, and he gets there, and he worships. And then what does he find? Famine. And he's got to be thinking, is this the blessing that you're telling me? I'm supposed to go here, and, and I get here, and I'm doing everything you told me. I've left everything that you asked me to just because I, you simply told me. And now I'm here, and there's no food. There's no food here? What's going on, he must have thought. And if, by the way, if you've been following God long enough, you, you, you know this. Famines often follow faith, right? You take a step of faith, and that, or that faith almost always is tested. That just seems to be God's M.O., right? We, you think, okay, I'll come to Jesus, and everything will get better, and it's all going to be sunshine and daisies. Well, no, quite often it gets worse, Right? That faith is tested. God wants to know, okay, do you trust me just because you think I'm going to fix everything in your life? Or do you follow me because you love me? The Bible says that God tests faith because he wants to develop perseverance and hope and, and, and endurance and wisdom. And so God's saying, yes, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be true to my word. But you need to learn a little endurance first. You need to learn a little wisdom first. But Abram's kind of like you, I think, and like me. He says, well, you know, I don't really want endurance. I just want money, right? I just want to be comfortable. I just want things to be good and easy. And God says, you know, I think I'm going to make you wise first. So we're going to work on wisdom. And once you have the wisdom, then come the blessings, right? So, and we see this, by the way. God's constantly doing this in all the biblical heroes. I think chiefly is Jesus. And he goes out to, the, to the, the river. He's baptized. The Spirit descends upon him. God says to everyone, hey, everyone, that's my boy. That's my son. I love him, right? And then what? Immediately, he's thrust out, much like Abram, to, to a wilderness, where there is no food, a time of testing. And here we find Abram is tested. One author says, sometimes God brings us in the middle of nowhere and gives you nothing. Why? Why? So that you would learn to trust him. You would learn to trust him. But instead of trusting him, Abram goes down to Egypt, as you see there in verse 10. Now, please be clear, he's not giving up. He's not going back home. He could. But he goes down to Egypt because Egypt has food. The Nile makes Egypt kind of uh, drought-proof, famine-proof, and so he hears Egypt has food. He goes down to Egypt. He's not giving up on God, but he's certainly not trusting in God. God didn't take him to this land so he would starve to death. Any more than he'll take his descendants about 400 years later into the wilderness to starve to death. And he should have realized, shouldn't he, that God's going to provide. He should have trusted God and stayed where God called him until God called him elsewhere. Much like uh, uh, what Mark read the scripture for us. Jesus asleep on the boat. In the middle of the storm, the apostles wake him up and say, don't you see we're drowning? We're drowning. We're all going to die. And Jesus says, listen, boys, where's your faith? Where's your faith? You think God's brought us all this way so we drown in a sea in the middle of of Galilee? Look, this is not God's plan. God didn't bring me here to drown, and therefore Jesus is able to sleep in the middle of the storm, but not so from Abram. He doesn't have that faith in the Lord yet, and and God might have come to him and said, man, where's your faith? Why are you leaving the land to which I just called you? Well, he's afraid. He takes things into his own hands. He's not rejecting God. No, no. 
But he's ignoring God, certainly. He says, I gotta, I gotta figure this out. I gotta take care of my wife. I gotta take care of my family. I gotta, God's not providing, so I'm going to have to. My friends, we're pretty good at this. This is, I don't know if you see yourself in this passage. In fact, I would suggest it doesn't take a famine for you to walk away from God. Right? In fact, we probably could use a little famine, don't you think? Right? I don't know, maybe that was your New Year's resolution. Be a little famine, a little famine this, to start off the year. Right? We, we're, we say, I'm famished. Because lunch is an hour late. I don't know how I'm going to endure this. You know, where's my food? I haven't had my third meal for, yet today. And so Abram's in the middle of very severe famine, the Bible says. Right? We, we have a bad hour we walk away from God. Someone says an unkind word to us, and we're all spinning around and full of bitterness and anger and rehearsing all sorts of things in our minds. And we say, God, I'm out of here. That's it. I'm done, right? And so uh, Abram, I think uh, we see ourselves in this man's story. Trials arrive in our lives, and so often we panic, we scheme, we, we wonder, okay, what if this is going to happen? If this happened, then that might happen, and that might happen, and that might happen, and that over there, that, that's the worst. And we run around as if the sky is falling, as if God doesn't have everything in control. And Jesus said to, uh, to his apostles, listen, why, 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 are you getting all, why, why are you worrying about food? Why are you worrying about what you wear? Let's just look at those lilies. Aren't they beautiful? Who, who cares for them? God does. Look at the sparrows. They neither sow nor reap, but they have everything they need. Who cares for them? Jesus says, God does. Don't you think God knows what you need, Jesus says? Don't you think he understands uh, your obstacles and the famines in your life and the troubles in which you experience? Don't you think he understands that? Right? Jesus says, listen, your Heavenly Father knows what you need. He's going to provide everything that you need. Jesus is teaching us, I think we're learning here, that, that we, we need to not just simply consider the circumstances around us, consider the famines in our lives or the storms that are raging around us, but we need to look to God above the circumstances. We need to, we need to see God riding above the storm, above the famine, look at the entire picture. By faith, we are to look to God and his promises in the midst of trouble. And that we know that every trouble that we face and every need that we have is known by God. God's, God knows about your son and God knows about your boss and God knows about your bank account and God knows about all your troubles. And his question is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? I know it all. I know your needs. It reminds me, I was teaching my kids this story uh, a number of weeks ago when things kind of went the wrong direction with our foster daughter. And we were talking about the 12 spies who entered into the, the promised land. Remember that? And that God leads Israel out to the promised land. They send 12 spies in and they come back out. And 10 spies say what? They're giants in there. They're giants. We need to go back. Now, what about the other two spies? This is what I asked my kids. Did the other two spies, did they see giants too? Well, of course they did. They're not blind to the giants. They're not blind to the famine. They're not blind to the storm and the circumstances in their life. But they also saw God. Right? The circumstances didn't, didn't block their view of God. See, Abram is, is just like the spies. I need to leave this place and go to Egypt. Right? Because I, 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 he forgot God. In his time of testing, he forgot God's greatness. He forgot God's love. And all he sees is famine. And so down he goes. And while he's going, he, he recognizes, well, I may be leaving trouble behind, but there's trouble ahead. And so he has this scheme, doesn't he? As you see in verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, by the way, ladies, if a man ever starts a conversation like that, just beware, okay? Hey, baby, you are so beautiful, all right? Because he's about to have a very large request of you, as we see here in verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared, here's my favorite part, for your sake. Right, baby, I'm doing this all for your sake, okay? I'm just looking out for you, okay? <laughs> and so here he goes, and he's got this scheme, and he's thinking, Sarah, you are so, you are so attractive, you're so pretty. 
right? They're going to kill me to get to you. Now, by the way, I, this just is a little footnote. Do you know how many times the Bible talks about how beautiful women are dangerous, right? And you think about Samson and Delilah. You think about David and Bathsheba. You think about Solomon and his wives. You think about Amnon and uh, Tamar. You think about Herod and his niece, right? There's all sorts of trouble in the, I, I, trouble with, the, with those situations. I have no commentary or application other than just to note that, okay? Just file that away. I'm not going near that, but I just find that interesting. So he goes down to Egypt, and he says to his wife, you're so pretty, they're going to kill me. Would you think, okay, well, maybe that's a good cue to turn back, right? Okay, so maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe we should go back to the famine. But no, no, uh, why, don't you, why don't you we come up with this uh, dishonest plan and then he tells his wife, she's the one to implement it, which is pretty nice of him, isn't it? And uh, so you say, you're my sister. Of course, we know, find out later in chapter 20, she is his half-sister. So it's not really a lie, he must have thought to himself. So he lays out this plan for her. And notice, by the way, she doesn't say a word, which I think is a minor miracle. Um, my, right? My wife would add to this conversation, okay? Just to let you know. But she's just, okay. That's the plan. We're going with it. And I think what Abram's thinking is, uh, listen, well, suitors will come, and I'm the older brother. There's no dad here. They're going to have to negotiate with me for your hand. That will give us time to kind of get on our feet. We'll get some, get some food together. We'll, we'll get, get everything situated, and we'll, we'll head back to the promised land, and I can just keep them at bay and, and, and give us time, and this is what we need to do. It's brilliant, isn't it? Right? I, you can imagine him congratulating himself. What could go wrong? Well, he forgot one little detail, and his name is Pharaoh. And I guess Pharaoh doesn't wait or ask, because you see this deceitful strategy becomes uh, terrible consequences. As you know, verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So Sarai, evidently so beautiful, she became the talk of all the country. And Pharaoh gets word of it. And so he takes her. He takes her. So Abram could keep suitors away, but there's no stopping Pharaoh. And now, now we don't know. The Bible's silent. Um, there may have been a, a time of preparation for concubines and wives that enter into a royal harem at this time. We're not sure. But can, can't you imagine Abram sitting in his tent alone and his wife? is in another man's house? I mean, I mean, how did that happen? I mean, when they, when they came to get her, don't you, don't you think she's got to be thinking, okay, baby, this is the time where you stand up? I mean, are we going to, they're taking me away. You see that? Are we going to continue with she's my sister plan? Because I'm going to another man's house. Aren't you going to protect me? He's going to use her to protect him even gets rich because of it. Look at what it says in verse 16. And for her sake, he, that's Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Pharaoh, evidently so pleased with Sarai, Abram gets filthy rich. And every time a camel comes through the front door, I think his heart must have been in turmoil. Because he knows the cost of that animal, right? The donkey wasn't free. The servants weren't for nothing. They were all coming into his possession because his wife no longer slept in his bed. She's gone. She has been sacrificed by her husband because of his lack of faith. Now, you might question and say, okay, why is he so blessed then? Why is he getting rich because of this? Well, I'm not sure he is blessed. I mean, you read verse 16 and all this wealth is coming to him, but can I suggest to you that material prosperity is not always a blessing. Money is not always a blessing. In fact, this money is going to soon, as we'll see in chapter 13, create conflict with his only relative that's living nearby. They're going to have to separate, which is, by the way, going to lead to all sorts of other problems for Lot. It's going to create conflict in their marriage because among the maidservants that he's receiving, uh, among them is a woman named Hagar who will soon become Abraham's adulterous girlfriend. He's going to have a son 
He's going to give rise to the Arab people. His other son's going to give rise to the Jewish people. And 4,000 years later, we're still dealing with the consequences of this decision to go down to Egypt. See, listen, money will solve some of your problems. There is no doubt. Money will also bring other problems. And may I also suggest to you that, that material prosperity is not always a sign of God's approval. That is, there are plenty of rich people with whom God is not pleased. Is that, that, yeah, that's evident, I'm sure. You can't determine your status with God by whether things are going well with you or things are going badly for you. And so here's Abram. He's rich and he's miserable and there's nothing he could do about it. There's no hope, right? You can't go to Pharaoh and say, hey, by the way, uh, I, I lied. That's my wife. Can I have her back, please? Right? There's nothing he can do until what? God steps in. So God comes to the rescue. And if I, I don't, just by way of a, a, a side, it, this scene kind of teaches me, at least hints to this, that you and I may go to great lengths to destroy our marriage, and God is working behind the scenes to keep it together. He's clearly doing that in this man's life as we see him move to this failed mission. As you know, verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And evidently, Pharaoh is not uh, pleased with his boils. And so he says in verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now, we're not sure how Pharaoh found this out. It might be because Sarai is unaffected. Just as the Jews, when God sends plagues on Egypt in hundreds of years, would be unaffected. And she may have been the only one without the rash, without the plagues. And you can imagine her going and saying, excuse me, Pharaoh, uh, I'm really sorry about the rash. It's my husband's fault. Right? And he's thinking, wait a second, you have a husband? I thought I was your husband. And what's going on here? And so he summons him, and he has all these questions for him, right? Why did, why did you lie to me, he says. Why, why are you leading me into sin, Pharaoh asks him. You know, God, God talks to Abram throughout his life, but he doesn't speak to him when he's in Egypt. Or does he? Because it kind of sounds like he's speaking through the godless pagan pharaoh, where this godless man is rebuking the child of God. In fact, remember, what was it that God said to Abram when he called him? He said, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. Well, he's, he's not a blessing, he's a curse, right? His faithless schemes have brought suffering in upon the world. And so Pharaoh says to him, just leave. You're, you, you are a sinful, wicked man. You treat your wife like this. You're gross. And so just get out of my country, says the pagan to the man of faith. And Abram, you notice, doesn't utter a word. This is in verse 20. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. There's no altars built in, in Egypt. There's no calling on the name of the Lord. There's no new promises from on high. He's lost his witness. He's defamed the name of God to a man who desperately needs God. And he creeps out of Egypt with his head down and his tail between his legs off to where? Where's he going? Well, he's going back to Bethel. I would suggest to you that what we now see, Abram, now that he's been sternly rebuked, he is repenting. As you see a repentant heart in verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first and there Abram, what, called on the name of the Lord. So this man who went down into Egypt, down into sin, now in verse 1 goes up into the promised land and travels the hundreds of miles back to Bethel. That's, that's going to be a long trip. Have you ever been on a road trip when you and your wife are arguing? That's a lot of fun, let me tell you, right? There's great times on that. Right? Here he is. You can imagine a miserable trip. He's got to be thinking, what have I done? God, I've ruined your honor. 
I rebelled against your will. I've neglected my, my wife. And so you see this relentless march. I need to get back to where I worshiped the Lord last. I need to get back to Bethel. I need to go back to, to where we, first, we last had that great time of worship and celebration. And he's, he's coming back to God. Right? We go down to Egypt. We do. We walk away from God. Some, some stay down in Egypt for a few days. Some people stay down in Egypt for decades. And Abram's this, this picture. Man, don't keep going farther in. Turn around and go back to God. Go back to where you first had a, uh, the last time you had a great day with God. Maybe you were reading the, the Gospel of Mark. When was your last great day with God? He said, go back to Mark. Maybe, maybe the, the last great time you had with God is when a friend was pouring in truth. Maybe if you're in Egypt today, you need to call him this afternoon, call her this afternoon, and say, listen, can we get together? And you, I, I need truth. I need you to speak into me. Maybe your marriage is a mess. And maybe the best thing for you to do is go back to that place where you took those vows so many years ago. And you take the hands of your husband and the hands of your wife and in brokenness, you say, God, we started in such hope and joy. And look at the mess in which we've created. And we don't even know how to unravel it. God, will you give us a fresh start? Will you start over with us? That's what Abram's doing. In fact, you see there in verse 4, he says, he went back to this altar that, that he made at the first, right? Or in verse 3, he went back to Bethel where he was at the beginning. And what did he do there? Verse 4 tells us, he called on the name of the Lord. Call on God's name. What did he say? God, I'm so sorry. What have I done? I've neglected my wife. I've dishonored you before the Egyptians. I've failed my mission. You wonder, did, did he ask, God, are you done with me? Is that it? Am I now just disqualified? You're going you're gonna to move on to another because I forgot you, God. I disobeyed you, God. I put my wife in danger. I'm supposed to be a blessing to the nations, and all I've been is a curse. Will you forgive me? Now, if I were God, and we're all thankful I'm not, I would say, man, you are a loser, right? <laughs> You've cursed the nations and gave your wife to another man? No, I, I think I might pick someone else. And yet what we discover is the unending faithfulness with God. Abram gets a fresh start. It's almost like a do-over. It's almost like a redemption, isn't it? In fact, it's a picture of the redemption. The redemption of Israel. Why did Israel go down to Egypt? When we're reading the end of Genesis? Because there was a famine in the land. And how were they freed? Well, just as Abram was. Through divine plagues on Pharaoh and his house. In fact, Pharaoh called Abram, and hundreds of years later, the Pharaoh will call Israel, and they'll say the exact same words to them. Take what you have and go. We read in Genesis 13 and verse 2, Abram was very rich with livestock, silver, and gold. As we'll read in Exodus 12, Israel had very much livestock, silver, and gold. And see, we have a little picture of the coming redemption of God's people, which of course is just a picture of the great redemption which we have in Christ. When the bride of God is rescued from a powerful enemy through the outstretched hand of God himself. And so we see in Abram this, this redemption that's taking place in his life, this, this powerful renewal in him as he recommits himself to God. He says, God, I'm yours again. I'm back with you. I'm going to walk by faith. Will you forgive me? God says, yes, I will. And so there he goes, a new start. And so what comes next? Is it now sunshine and, and, and flowers? No, my friends. Another trial. Another test. As we look at scene number two, Abram and Lot. This time, you'll notice he, he passes the test, amazingly, with this, this triumphant trust in God because these two men, Abram and Lot, returned from Egypt. Abram's learned a great deal. You'll find out Lot's learned absolutely nothing as they plunge into this greedy conflict in verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, 
also had flocks and herds and tents, so that land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock at the time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. If the first test was the test of want, this is the test of wealth. Both men are wealthy. Their wealth is not in dollars, but donkeys. And, and the land is maxed out. So if they're going to get richer, right, they need to part. They need to separate. And so you expect Abram to say, okay, Lot, you need to, you need to go elsewhere, right? Because Abram's the head of this clan. Abram's older. Abram's the one who's been promised the land. Lot, if anything, is just this tagalog. And so you expect him to say, God's called me here. It's time for you to leave. But instead, you have this, this incredible loving offer, as you note in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're brothers, he says. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. He, in other words, he comes to Lot and he lets Lot decide. He lets the younger man, the nephew, you choose. I don't, and I don't know if you, anyone raised here with older brothers. Right? Yeah, yeah I, I have a couple older brothers. And I, I don't know if anyone's ever, you know, there's like one slice of pizza left. And how many older brothers have ever gone to the younger brother and say, would you like the piece of pizza? Right? So I, don't, I don't know if that's ever happened in the history of humanity. Okay? Certainly didn't happen in my house. And here's, here's Abram, and he's confident. Abram's content. And he comes to him. He says, listen, you're my nephew. You're my brother. You choose. You choose. You take what you want. I'll take what's left over. I mean, it's quite a change, isn't it? From this calculating schemer down in Egypt. Now he's got to figure it all out. I've got to take it all in my own hands. And now he puts his entire future. In fact, he puts the whole promise of the land in God's hands. He says, God's going to give me what I need. And he lets Lot choose. In fact, he's seeking peace with Lot, isn't he? You know this. Why are we fighting? What, what are we doing? We're family, he says. I love you. You take what you want, I'll take the leftover. How many families do you know have because of a death of a, of a loved one end up never speaking to each other again? Because they wanted that, and they wanted this, and they didn't get that, and they got over that, and they're like dogs fighting over a bone. Boys fighting over their deceased parents' things and all the blessing and all the accumulated wealth that the parents were happy to leave on to the next generation just becomes a source of bitterness. It's not so for Abram. It's almost as if Abram's read James 3. The wisdom from above is peaceable and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He could have said to Lot, listen, boy, if it wasn't for me, you would be back in Iran digging through the trash. Everything you have is because of me, and so it's time for you to leave. But he doesn't. He says, okay, boy, uh, I love you, and I want you to choose, and I'll take what, what you don't want. And just imagine, you know, his word spreads among his servants. They must have thought the old man's lost it. Lot must have thought, you know, my uncle is growing soft. But he's not growing soft. He's growing peaceable. He's, he's growing confident in the Lord. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Are you a peacemaker? Or are you a smolderer? Uh, a blow your topper? A not talk for a day and a half? Or are you? Abram's a peacemaker. You certainly know families, don't you, that maybe are separated by just a few miles and haven't spoken in years. You ask them, hey, why don't you talk to your brother anymore? Well, he has my number. He knows where I live. Right? I've said what I need to say. If he wa- I'm happy to talk if he wants to talk. Right? You know people like that? Jesus says if you're giving your offering at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Do what? Right? Stop. Stop. Stop offering and go be reconciled to your brother. You're driving to church. You remember your brother has something against you. You pull over. You call and say, listen, brother, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry for everything I've contributed to this. I'm sorry that I have been content to let this situation go like it's been going for so long. Can we this morning get together and talk? Can't we work this out? I want my brother back. I want my son back. I want my mother back. I want my sister back. I want my friend back. You see, Abram has this powerful demonstration of neighbor love in addition to this amazing act of faith. It's amazing faith because he's not worried about money. He's not worried about his future, right? He just, he's free. He's trusting the Lord and he's free. You say, well, how, how does he get this way? He learned it in Egypt, right? Because the last time he, I, he schemed and plotted and neglected those he loved, it all turned out wicked and awful and terrible. And even then God cared for me. God gave me my wife back. God brought me back home. Certainly God's going to make sure I'm going to get the land that I need to get, so Lot, you choose. He's just totally free as he walks in faith. You remember the, the movie Rocky? Right. Hopefully you do, if you're an American. All right. Uh, right. You just need to watch the first movie. My wife's sign over here. I won't look over there. Ro- Rocky. Remember Rocky? It's a great, great illustration. Just bear with me, okay? Rocky wants to fight Apollo Creed. He's just this bum from Philly, and Apollo Creed is the champion. And he, and he goes to his, wife, uh, his girlfriend, Adrian, right? And he says, Adrian, I don't even want to win. I just want to finish, right? I just want to stay on my feet. Why? He says, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Right? That's right. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. Well, some of you laugh. However, I wonder if we have all of that in our life, right? And it may not be fighting the champion, but we have this thing. Listen, I, want, I, I need to get this. I need to, I need to get that office. I need to look like this. I need to make this. I need to live here. I need to drive this kind of car. I need to earn this kind of degree. And then I'll know I'm not a bum. Then I'll know. And we, we live, and you, some, you, you teenagers went to this disciple now, and the, the pastor was telling you about your identity in Christ. It's so important, because so often we live as if we're seeking identity in the things we do and the people we become. We, we've been alienated from God. We've been, we, we, we've been removed from his presence, and we don't know if we're loved anymore. We don't know if we're significant anymore. And so we say, okay, I need to do this, and then I'll know I'm something. I need to get this, and then I'll know I'm someone. And we, we live for these things, and we live for that, and we, we live for all these things. And Abram says, no, not for me. I have God. I have God. And so I don't care what land I live. I don't care what I give. I know who I am in Jesus. I, I, I was so impressed at the, uh, I know you're all going to watch a football game this afternoon. I really liked the last football game that was in er, earlier in, um, in, in January, uh, the NCAA championship game. I thought it was, a, <laughs> the, foot, the football was great. Um, the outcome was even better. Uh, but uh, th- there's this 19-year-old kid named Trevor Lawrence. And a year ago, he was in high school. And now he's playing in the championship game in front of 100,000 people. There are millions of people watching. And this kid is surrounded a, a couple days before the game. And there, there's 50 reporters all shoving their microphones in his face and their cameras. And they say, listen, kid, how are you going to endure the pressure of this big game? You're 19. How are you going to endure it? And Trevor Lawrence looks at him. This kid, he says, I'm not defined by numbers on a scoreboard. I'm defined by what Jesus thinks of me, and that's not going to change whether I win or lose. Right? Amen, for sure. Praise God. It's just total freedom. And then what does he do? Just, I'm just going to go play football. Right? And he won, right? And this is what Abram has. He's free because he believes. He doesn't need to be grasping anymore. He doesn't have any seeking anymore. He's content. Do you have that freedom? You have that faith. It reminds me of his son, right, who did not seek his own interest, but the interest of others, who did not grasp, but gave himself away. Well, this leads, of course, to the selfish choice, doesn't it? You see that in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. 
in the direction of Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Today, if you go to Bethel, it's very arid. But 20 miles away, the land drops into a fertile plain below, known as the Jordan Valley. That's the place you go if you want to get richer. And that's what Lot wants. He says it's like the land of Egypt. Right? So Egypt's where he got rich. He may have left Egypt, but Egypt never left him. And so with no thought of his uncle, no thought of the nations, no thought of God, he says, give me Sodom. That's where I want to go. Give me the valley. He's a businessman after all. And so he takes the, takes, the, takes the best land from the one who's cared from him, rips off his own family so he can have more, and he heads east. You see that in verse 11. Whenever you read east in the book of Genesis in the Bible, it's usually bad, right? God kicked Adam and Eve east out of the garden. Cain went east from there to build his city of destruction, right? The, the, uh, the tower builders traveled east from Noah's ark in order to build the Tower of Babel, and now Lot is traveling east from Abram's alt, alt, altar, Going east seems to always be seeking a false garden. It ends up being a city of destruction. Um, And we even have this ominous warning there. You see that at the end of verse 10. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, But boy, man, think about all the money I can make. I mean, I get rich down there, he was thinking. He seems to be unconcerned about the well-known spiritual climate in Sodom. You see that verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked Great sinners against the Lord. He's not thinking about where do I want to raise a family. He's not thinking, is there a good church down there? He's not thinking, will my wife have friends? Will my, will my children have community? Instead, he's thinking, do you know what kind of house we could buy? Do you know what kind of vacations we could afford if we live there? And I wonder how many people have joined Lot in this foolish journey of more and more. How many people have put their job ahead of their family's spiritual well-being? How many people have put their career over their ability to serve and participate in the church? And they say, you know, I'd love to serve God's people, but this job's keeping me so busy. It's just keeping me away from that. I'm not, I'm not judging anyone, but I just want to make it sure we're clear here. There, there are jobs that are maybe totally legitimate and fine, and yet are terrible spiritually for your family. They will keep you from leading your family. They will keep you from serving God. But boy, they'll pay for the lifestyle you've always dreamed of. I mean, think of the, you know, the, the, the cars you could buy and the size of house you can live Man, we, we, want, we want that. By the way, I've been there. I, this is the fourth church I served in. God willing, it'll be the last. But there was a time in which I left the church that ordained me to the church down the road when I was in youth ministry because they said, hey, do you want to be the, just a high school pastor? In fact, we have a whole sanctuary just for the high school students. In fact, we charter bus every, we got a fleet of charter buses wherever we go, not these dilapidated church vans that you've been driving for years. And I said, that sounds pretty good to me. It was a year and a half of utter misery. It was a spiritual desert for me. I went for all the wrong reasons. I know people, I know people who have moved and they call me, email me, say, Pastor, we can't find a church. There's not a church within an hour that preaches the gospel, but boy, the cost of living sure is low. And I'm telling you, my friends, that your spiritual life is more important than your material well-being. And there's no, everyone, people move, people take jobs, there's no judgment whatsoever, but you need to understand where you're going and why you're going. And I wonder if Lot would agree, because you watch his path, and in verse 12, it says he's living, what, near Sodom. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities and moved his tent as far as Sodom. You get to chapter 14, he's in Sodom. You get to chapter 19, he's one of the political leaders in Sodom. And, and I trust he's getting richer all the while, while his world falls apart. The man become, has to be dragged out of the city by two angels as lava tumbles out of the sky and kills everyone. Second Peter says of Lot, he was distressed by what he saw in Sodom. He may have been, but evidently his wife wasn't because she wouldn't leave the city and end up losing her life, right? And then his daughters end up marrying men of Sodom, learning the ways of Sodom, and become degenerate like Sodomites. And in the end of Lot's story, you have a greedy man who's broke, 
drunk, living in a cave with a dead wife and his daughters doing unspeakable acts. Beware that seeking after the dollar doesn't always work out. There are more important things in life. Man, your house may be nice, your car may be amazing, but is your marriage falling apart? Are the kids with the wrong people? Is there no church to help? Just like Lot. Well, finally, we come to scene number three. It will be very brief here. Abram and God. Abram spent time with Pharaoh. He spent time with Lot. And now he spends time with God in this beautiful, renewed relationship. Because after Abram's offered a lot, God, who did not speak to him in Egypt, finally speaks again in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. Right? And he invited Abram and said, look, look, lift up your eyes. Remember in verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes and saw Sodom, saw the Jordan Valley. Now Abram said, lift your eyes and see with faith. Look with faith at what I'm going to give you. Live by faith in the promises of God and what God has offered him. And you, 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 you spend your days just not looking at what's around you, but see what God is doing around you. Just as God had promised him the land, you see in verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you, God says, and your offspring forever. Do you see that? You see, I'm going to do this for you. And now he, he moves from the land to this promise of offspring there in verse 16. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring could be counted also. Of course, his, his offspring are going to be numerous and plentiful. It's prefigured in Israel and is fulfilled in the New Testament people called the church. The Bible says in Galatians 3 and verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you are a, have faith in Christ, you're a son of Abraham. The song is correct. Father Abraham had what? Many sons. Hey, I'm one of them. And so are you. Now you may say, well, who cares? I mean, so I come up to you and say, listen, do you realize you're a son of Abraham? Say, okay, what does that mean? Who cares? Well, it means a great deal because you read on in Galatians and it says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So the promises to Abraham are given to those who trust in Abraham's God. We are his descendants. We are the ones who inherit the land, the land to which, the, which it all pointed to, which the promised land was just a shadow, right? We're not talking about real estate in the Middle East. We're talking about the new earth in which it's all pointing us to. And so God says, listen, I'm going to give this to your children, to your descendants. They'll be talking about you 4,000 years later in a place called Hamilton, rejoicing in that they too will receive what I promised you. And so he says to Abram, now I want you to get up and I want you to go look around. Verse 17, arise, walk through the land, then the, uh, the length and the breadth and the length for the land, for I'm going to give it to you. So he goes hiking and he goes just walking around. And I, you, don't you think that his soul is soaring as he considers the wonderful promises of God? He said, this is all God's. Everywhere I go, it's God's. And he says, he's going to give it to me and my people. You ever done something like that? You ever like buy a new house and you go into the bedroom and say, God, this, this, this is your room and you've given it to us. May this be a place of safety and joy. And you go to the dining room and you say, God, this is, this is your dining room. You've given it to us. May this be a place of fellowship with friends and where new friends are made. And you go to the fireplace and say, God, this is your fireplace that you've given to us. May we gather as a family around its warmth and enjoy la laughter and love. And you go outside into your yard and say, God, this is your yard. And you've given it to us. May this be a place of adventure where everyone who enjoys it is mindful of the one who made it and the one who has given it to us. And Abraham's just hiking around saying, God, this is all yours. It's all yours and you're giving it to me. That's true. That's not even possible. In fact, he's so moved by this, we see once again the man who has now returned to faith must worship God. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He worships. Just as we've done today. He has church. There gathers his servants together, hundreds of them by this time. And they worship. And you wonder if the neighbors came. What is this guy doing? Who is this guy? Building an altar, calling on God's name. And I know I'm speculating, but I, I just wonder if one of those neighbors might have come up to Abram and said, Will you tell me about your God? 
Does your God really forgive sins? Does your God really, does your God really um, uh, give mercy and grace? Is there hope for me? You know what Abram would have said in that conversation? He said, yeah. In fact, God promised to bless me, take care of me, and I let another man take my wife so that I can become rich. And even then, he didn't walk away from me. Even then, he never left me. He gave me my wife back. He preserved my life, and he guides me. He has been so gracious to me, and God would be gracious to you, too. He would be. To every single one here, he would be gracious. He would extend mercy and forgiveness all over you if you would receive him. In fact, Abram builds an altar. You know what the altars were for? They were for sacrifices, which has just pointed us to the ultimate sacrifice of Abram's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would die for sinners and be raised from the dead and invite all who would trust in him to receive forgiveness and everlasting life. Our Father, we're so thankful for the Lord and the work that he has done in Abram's life and in our life. We pray, even as we consider these truths, that we would be people of faith, that we would trust you whether things are good or things are bad, and that we would walk with our eyes not simply upon this world, but upon the God who stands above. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.